I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. Since the pandemic, we're all getting to spend plenty of time in our homes. And as we'll find out, these spaces can have a big impact on our well-being. Getting plenty of sunlight is key. There have been studies that show that you know, patients that are hospitalized for depression, if they are randomly assigned to a sunny hospital room, they're actually discharged sooner. And later, the impact of small confined spaces on creativity. Henry David Thoreau, he wrote in a cabin that was about eight feet wide by 10 feet deep uh, and produced a work of literature that um, has changed my life and the lives of millions of people. Um, size matters, but perhaps not in the way we think. It's, it's more about reframing our expectations. The great indoors, creativity, and making space for small delights with poet Ross Gay. That's all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Modern humans are an indoor species. In normal times, the majority of us spend nearly 90% of our time shuttling between our homes, schools, stores, restaurants, and gyms. And for all that time, do we ever consider how these spaces affect our thoughts, moods, productivity, or relationships? Unlike the great outdoors, we know relatively little about the indoor worlds we live in. For example, the average American home has over 2,000 different microorganisms in it making it more diverse than the world outside. In her latest book, The Great Indoors, The Surprising Signs of How Buildings Shape Our Behavior, Health, and Happiness, science journalist Emily Anthes explores our great indoors with a fresh perspective. How does room temperature impact our cognitive performance? And do those tiny microbes hiding in our homes benefit our immune systems? Well, Emily Anthes, welcome to Life Examined. We appreciate the time. Of course, I'm happy to be here. Well, suddenly everybody's interested or or maybe is now living in total hatred of the indoors, depending on, on how you think of it. Um, you did not write this book during a pandemic, but certainly the information about um, what these indoor spaces do to us, I think, are on all of our minds, like it or not. Um, so what, what kind of got you into this subject? Well, so I'm a science writer. That's my background. I'm not an architect or a designer. And so I spend a lot of time reading the scientific literature and trying to keep track of studies that are coming out. And seven or eight years ago, I noticed this small surge of studies being published on what people were calling the indoor microbiome. So, you know, we have all sorts of microorganisms that live on our bodies, but scientists were beginning to document all the microbes that live in our homes and our buildings. And their findings kind of astonished me. You know, one study found that the average American home had something like 2,000 different species of microorganisms in it. Mm. And so that I thought was fascinating in its own right. But it also sort of got my brain churning and got me thinking about, you know, there's all this stuff going on in my one-bedroom apartment that is invisible to me and that I don't even know about. Like, what else is happening indoors that I don't think about and sort of thinking about our indoor environments as these rich, complex environments. Mm. Um, it was a sort of a perspective shift for me that then caused me to branch out and look at all sorts of, of other fields and how they're related to our indoor lives. Isn't that interesting that we spend so much time, at least some of us, um, trying to th live under this illusion that we have these like sparkling clean homes that every corner is clean and we disinfect and we use all these chemicals. And yet, I guess what I'm hearing you say is just that <laughs> there's a lot of stuff growing in our house, like it or not, or living in these places that we call our home. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you could not have a sterile home, even if you wanted one, but even if you could, one thing I learned is that you wouldn't want one, that sterile homes aren't great for us. So, you know, right now, a lot of people, everyone's focused on viruses and pathogens, and absolutely, we don't want that stuff in our environment. But the vast majority of microorganisms in our home are benign, and some are even beneficial. So we don't want to be eradicating every sign of, of life from our homes. Yeah, jump into kind of what is living. And, and you said a lot of this is, is, is safe. We know hopefully not viruses or bacteria, but um, what are we talking about when we think of all these organisms uh, living with us in our homes? Yeah, so it's a real mix. And one of the interesting things that researchers have found is that the microorganisms in our home are actually even more diverse than the microorganisms that are outside. Hmm. And that's because they're coming from a couple of different sources. So a lot of the bacteria are coming from us. You know, scientists have really 
elaborated in the last decade or two that our bodies are roughly half human cells, half microbial cells, that we are just loaded with microorganisms and that these microbes are really important. They help us digest food. They help us regulate our immune systems. These are sort of partners in maintaining our health. And as we move about our homes, we shed them into our environment. So that's one reason that a lot of the stuff we're surrounded with isn't bad for us, so to speak, because it's it's literally coming from us in the first place. And if I'm right, um, we, we each kind of leave our own <laughs> cluster of, of, of cells or organisms wherever we go. There's like, for me, like a Jonathan print of stuff in the house, right? Yeah, you can think of your microbiome as, you know, roughly as individual to you as your fingerprint. And scientists have done interesting studies where they can actually, you know, see who's spending the most time in the kitchen in a family of four by analyzing the microbiome that they find in there. So we leave these these sort of personal microbe trails around us at wherever we go. You can find who's been stealing the ice cream more than the e- other person. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the, the important stuff. Well, to me, I feel like this kind of science is just, is just starting to take off. I mean, understanding, for example, um, about how our guts work, how we digest food. I mean, this is, I think, one of the hot topics right now in science. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's an increasing recognition that microbes aren't the enemy. I mean, right. a select few are, the coronavirus is, but you know, it's an enormous class of organisms and most of them are absolutely essential, not just to our own health, but to life on this planet. You know, they allow crops to grow and help decompose things. So um, microorganisms are really mostly our friends. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, so this is what's happening on on the microscopic level, but I think that you're also kind of writing about these spaces in in kind of larger terms as well about how we interact with a space um, and kind of how how architecture in many ways can uh, um, it can change our moods. It can maybe even determine our sense of happiness. Can you, can you kind of say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the big takeaways from the book is nearly every element of the indoor environment affects us in some way, and it can be in really powerful and sometimes surprising ways. So if you look at something like mood, we know that a big factor there is daylight, that exposure to plenty of daylight in the morning helps keep our circadian rhythms in check. So it helps us stay alert during the day and also to sleep better at night. But it also has a pretty powerful mood boosting effect. There have been studies that show that, you know, patients that are hospitalized for depression, if they are randomly assigned to a sunny hospital room, they're actually discharged sooner than those who are randomly assigned to shady rooms. And nature has a lot of similar effects. Um, You know, we normally think of nature as being outdoors, but if we can find ways to bring it into our spaces, whether that's houseplants or nature photographs or even just views out the window of natural landscapes, that can boost mood, reduce stress, uh, boost focus and attention, have really an array of benefits for us. So, so those li- are just two of, of many examples. So light is really, really important. And, and you know, and I think of, of situations where somebody gets absolutely none of it. And, and my mind goes, thinks of prisons, jail cells, mm-hmm. solitary confinement. And I think, you know, what I've been reading as well is that we're finding that those spaces are just so harmful to mental health. Yeah, solitary confinement, which I look at in some detail in, in one chapter is one of the most harmful things we can do to another human being. You know, we are social creatures and to utterly deprive someone of not just social contact and interaction, but, you know, touch and positive sensation. And as you said, then daylight and other sorts of positive experiences can just be devastating. You know, anything from these inmates report increased anger and depression and loss of appetite, but as many as 40% of them actually begin to hallucinate or develop delusions when they're in solitary confinement. And so it's just can create havoc psychologically on on people who are subjected to it. Yeah, there, there could be a whole show on that. I mean, that that's such a that's such a huge topic right now. So, I mean, uh, so to kind of get back to how this though could play out in our own homes. So, I'm hearing, you know, sunlight is, is vital. Um what what's the next thing that can have a big impact on our well-being? 
Yeah, I might have gotten ahead of myself a little bit, but when people ask me for recommendations right now, as people have been doing, actually the number one thing I say is plants. Um, nature is just one of the most beneficial things we can bring into our spaces, and it distracts us from stress, anxiety, and pain. It boosts our focus and attention. It boosts our mood. And the interesting and nice thing about it is that it doesn't have to be real nature. So, you know, if you can bring in a dozen houseplants, that's great. If you'd rather just look at a photo of nature on your desk, or even there's some evidence that playing natural sounds like running water or bird song can also have a powerful stress-reducing effect in your space. So I really encourage people to figure out some way to get some element of, of nature into their spaces. It's, it's funny to me. I mean, it, it, as you said, it just has to be some kind of a simulation of nature, right? I mean, I guess it, it doesn't have to necessarily be the real thing. No, I mean, if if you can, the, the more you can do along those lines, the better. If you have a view of a field or mountains or something, that's great. But, you know, I live in New York City. I do not. So I have to find other ways to, to get my dose of nature. One more thing that, you know, that really caught my attention in your book was, was something that that's very simple. Maybe we don't think about it unless we're in a heat wave or it's freezing out, which is just temperature. Temperature regulation is something that can actually impact how, how we get things done. Yeah, I was surprised by this too. You know, I knew that temperature makes an impact on comfort. You know, I'm someone that tends to be cold in a lot of spaces and air-conditioned offices, but it turns out it's not just a matter of comfort. So in general, women are more sensitive to temperature changes than men are, and they tend to prefer slightly warmer temperatures. But the really interesting thing is that studies now show that women also perform better on cognitive tasks at warmer air temperature hmm. than men do. And the other sort of interesting corollary to that is you know, an office space is tough to design and operate because you have competing needs from a lot of people. But the research suggests that nudging the temperature up just a little bit to make it warmer has less of a negative effect on men than having it too cold does on women. Hmm. So the takeaway from that is that we should be keeping our office spaces a, a little bit warmer in, in the summer. And then at the same time, I mean, anecdotally, you hear things like, yet yeah, we, we sleep much better when it's kind of colder in the room, right? Yeah, that it does have a strong relation to sleep. And so if people are struggling with insomnia, I mean, one thing that can be helpful is to get a fan or even just set the thermostat a bit lower in the evenings because that that is conducive to sleep. I think of how we design or how we've been designing buildings over over the last hundred years. And for some reason, I think of public housing, you know, these big tenements that go up in New York City is a classic example. And from what I can just see as an observer is that it seems like none of this was taken into account. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two issues there. I mean, one is public housing in particular. I don't think there's been nearly enough attention paid to occupant health and well-being. It's just often not been a priority for political and economic reasons. Sure. And, you know, obviously that's something I think that needs to change. But even in general, even when you look at, you know, luxury high rises, I think the trend over the 20th century was to create spaces and buildings that were more and more closed off from the natural world, sort mm. of these hermetically sealed glass boxes. And part of that was driven by concerns over, you know, energy efficiency and the oil crisis in the 70s. And some of it was driven by technological advances. But as a result, our buildings became sort of space shuttles or, or capsules that really closed us off from the outside world. And I, I think the research now suggests that was exactly the wrong instinct that, hmm. you know, in addition to light and nature, which we've talked about, you know, bringing in more fresh air to our spaces is really good for our health. Bringing in some of the microbes that live in soil and plants outdoors is good for our health. So I think sort of as a general trend, one thing I would like to see happen is to create sort of more permeable barriers between the indoors and the outdoors that could have all sorts of health benefits for us. And I, I also can imagine another thing is we, we mentioned it a bit earlier was just also 
the ability to see people, to share spaces. I, I don't. I can still remember when I took a tour of the Googleplex for the first time, and right, and there was this ethos of shared spaces, open environments. You're going to have a greater collaboration of ideas, which is something we've seen kind of played out. But I mean, can you say more about just the importance of of just having access to people and the way we think about a structure? Yeah, I mean, so I think it is a double-edged sword. So, you know, there are two things, when it comes to social interaction, there are two things that we as humans really need. And one is social interaction and access to humans. I mean, we see what can go wrong when you deprive people of that. But on the flip side, the other thing we also really need is some personal space, some bit of territory to claim and call our own privacy And so it's really a balancing act. If you're talking about a place like an office, like absolutely you want sort of spaces where groups can gather or maybe smaller lounges where people can brainstorm or work on a smaller project together. But it's also really important to provide people with some space where they can get away from everyone and they can focus on themselves or they can decompress. And so I think... One of the important things to do in in shared spaces is to provide a sense of choice and control. So create little sort of different micro environments, different kinds of spaces, and allow people to move between them as their needs change. Yeah. Where do you think building is going? Do you think that these these things are being taken into account, um, whether it's light, whether it's temperature, whether it's the environment? Um, what what are you seeing kind of in terms of the conversations of architects and builders right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting time for these questions. And, you know, obviously, if I could make the pandemic go, go away by snapping my fingers, I would. But, you know, one very small silver lining is that I think it has made people more aware of and concerned about the quality of our indoor environments, both because that affects our disease risk, but also because we're spending so much time indoors that, you know, bad design can really take a toll on us right now. So I'm seeing increased interest in these topics, which I think is a good sign. I'm seeing a lot of interest right now in ventilation. And, you know, Mm. some of that's being driven by the pandemic. And it is important for the pandemic. But I think a lot of our buildings have been poorly ventilated for a long time before that. So, you know, some of these changes that might be ushered in and sort of a newfound focus on indoor air quality are going to have all sorts of benefits for us even after the pandemic is over. So I'm hoping for more of those positive ripple effects. Well, yeah, the pandemic, I think, is going to change a lot about housing. I mean, the latest thing I read, and this is happening in New York City, is that everybody's trying to move to the suburbs. Prices are up in the suburbs by a lot. I have family out there. I grew up out there when I was younger. So it seems like we are right now living amid a shift in how people think they want to live in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this crisis is also, you know, will spark more interest in creating spaces that maybe are are flexible in terms of their use and their configuration, you know, a home or a house that is easy to add a Zoom classroom or at-home office to. Um, And in specialty buildings too, like offices or hospitals, places where you can sort of reconfigure the layout or the function of the space, I think, are going to become really important because, you know, we don't know exactly what the next crisis will be, but we can be pretty sure that there will be one. And so the more flexibility we can have in our spaces, the better. You know, it's funny when I, when I read the piece about this kind of this, this march out to the suburbs, I could also at the same time hear all of the environmental voices saying, you know, city living though can be so incredibly green uh, lower energy uses um i mean certainly that that plays into this as well yeah and i think you know maybe i'm biased because i live in an incredibly right. dense city but i do worry a little bit about people getting what i think is the wrong message that density is the problem right. i mean density is very often the solution for you know, as you mentioned, sustainability reasons, for all sorts of reasons, cities and and dense urban living have a lot of benefits. That said, I also don't think there's necessarily a lot of evidence right now that the density of a city or a county is playing a really huge role in viral spread. Um, I believe there was a study that came out recently that showed that it was more the density of a household. So, you know, if you have 
eight people in a home or 10 people in a home, that's riskier than four, less than the density of an entire neighborhood. So I certainly would not want people to take away from this crisis that the dense living is bad. I think right. it's possible to do safely and it's important for a lot of other reasons. Well, speaking of, of, of dense living, you've written a lot about astronauts adjusting to life in a confined indoor space. What is that like? Yeah, that is, there's really fascinating research on sort of psychological coping by astronauts because mm. NASA knows that, you know, that's a human factors obstacle. We can't send crews to the moon or Mars if we can't figure out how to keep them from wanting to kill each other. Um, and so living in a small confined space like that can cause all sorts of stress. It is often associated with interpersonal tension. You know, there have been a number of notable, not attacks, but sort of um, conflicts in space and in other confined spaces like Antarctic bases. And that's where that other element I mentioned before, the sort of personal space and privacy comes in. That seems to have a lot to do with it, because not only do you have you know six or eight people in a small space, but there's nowhere they can go to escape. They can't really go recharge anywhere or get away from whatever it is that's getting on their nerves. So mm. it causes a lot of, of social stresses. And then there are more sort of sensory stresses of boredom and sensory sameness. You know, if you're looking at the same stainless steel wall every day for six months or eight months, we know that that can cause physiological stress in our bodies. Can you talk a little bit about the role of pollution in our homes? Not just the pollution that comes from um, the outside world that we bring in, but the pollution that we create in our own homes. Um, I think of my wife, for example, who's shocked that we're still cooking with a gas stove and all the poor health benefits that that can have for us. Wildfire season aside, in general, most of us in the U.S., our main exposure to in, to air pollution is actually indoors. And that's mm -hmm. partly because in most places, thanks to federal regulation, outdoor air has gotten a lot better over the last few decades. So in general, you know, when you don't have wildfire smoke in the air, you want to be bringing in more outdoor air to dilute those indoor pollutants, which, as you alluded to, can come from cooking, they can come from cleaning. Um, we do know, unfortunately, that gas stoves are really big emitters of pollution in the home. I have a gas stove too. I'm a renter. There's not much I can do about it, but mm. it can have a real impact on indoor air quality. That said, there are some easy solutions people can take, which um, I'm happy to, to suggest. Sure. I mean, like. is, it, is it as simple as ventilation or go ahead? Yeah, no, I mean, there are a couple of things. So ventilation is absolutely the most important. Um, a lot of people who have range hoods don't bother to use them or only use them if they, you know, are doing something that really generates a lot of smoke. But really, we should be using our range hoods every time we cook. Hmm. Um, we don't, again, we're renters. We don't have a range hood, but we have a window in our kitchen and we have a window fan positioned in the window and set to exhaust. So it is sucking the air out when we cook. And then there are some other, like, really interesting little tricks or almost hacks. So if you're lucky enough to have a range hood, because of how they're usually built, they actually do a much better job at sucking up pollutants if you cook on the back burners. Mm. Um, so that's one, one interesting trick. And then also because we know that gas stoves and appliances are so much worse for air quality than electric, if there's any, you know, if replacing your stove altogether isn't an option, if there's any cooking you can move to electric appliances, you know, like boil water for your coffee or your tea in an electric kettle or use an electric toaster oven instead of using the gas appliances, that will also cut down on, on your indoor air pollution. Well, thinking into the future here, I I know you you write a lot about the technology of the house, how it's changing, how there's going to be new things introduced as as houses are built or as we just incorporate them into the structures that we have. What are some of the things that you're watching that you think are just kind of interesting in the development of how we live? Yeah, I mean, I think smart homes are really interesting the way that they're evolving. You know, a lot of people have probably heard of things like Nest, the smart thermostat, or, you know, smart locks. And a lot of these devices early on were 
really designed for functions like that, basically for convenience to make it easier for us to do things. But what's happening now is there's a lot of interest in turning some of these technologies to health monitoring and essentially turning your home into something like a medical device. Hmm. And what may surprise people to learn is that a lot of this is happening in a sector where you might not necessarily expect it, which is elder care and aging. So you are seeing senior care homes and retirement facilities installing sensors that can alert staff if somebody falls or monitoring people's gait so it can alert staff if it looks like somebody might be at risk of falling and then they can get physical therapy or bed sensors and motion sensors and all of these sorts of things are being integrated into the fabric of our buildings and our homes in ways that are sort of turning them into to health monitors in a way. And I think it will be really interesting to see where that all heads. Well, Emily Anthes, thank you so much for this conversation. We appreciate the time. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Emily Anthes is a science journalist and the author of The Great Indoors, The Surprising Signs of How Buildings Shape Our Behavior, Health, and Happiness. Still to come, are small spaces more conducive to creativity? And how have external surroundings inspired legendary literature? Our next guest says one very famous author wrote, quote, on an ironing board in his parents' laundry closet. That's coming up after this short break on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Emily Anthes adventure into the indoor world, describing some of the profound and sometimes unexpected ways that indoor spaces shape our lives. Our next guest describes small indoor spaces as being a womb for many of our greatest works of literature. From Emerson to Wordsworth to Louisa May Alcott and Dan Brown, creative writing spaces, though often intimate, were far from ideal. Jared Brock is a filmmaker and author. He currently resides in a 600-square-foot cottage off the Irish Sea. Jared Brock, welcome to Life Examined. We appreciate it. Thank you. You've written uh, about creative spaces for a number of years, and I love the work you've done, particularly um, looking at uh, writing spaces of famous authors. What what got you into that topic? What made you so interested in, in exploring it? Well, I am a full-time author and filmmaker. And whenever my wife and I travel, we typically do three things. We eat good food, we try to visit monasteries and distilleries, right. and we check out the spaces of famous authors. So I've been to Emerson's, Longfellow's, Dickens, Shakespeare, Hemingway, Stowe, Wesley, mm. a whole bunch. Yeah. And, and, and why were you interested in seeing where they worked? I just think because I've always envisioned having this perfect little, you know, British rainy day um, writing hutch with a right. fire and a pipe in my mouth, very <laughs> shire, hobbit-like. And um, that's never been the reality. So I like to see what it's been like for authors that have touched my life. And um, their spaces, too, are very rarely ideal. Right. And, and I think, isn't it, it's interesting that I think a lot of us dream of, of crafting that certain space in which we think we can work. Well, why do you think we have that need in us? What's, what's going on there? I think there's potentially two things, Jonathan, that I've, I've thought about regarding this. One of them is that maybe it's a hearkening back to the womb. Or perhaps it's actually a, a glimpse forward to heaven. It's kind of this place that's safe and perfect and more importantly, conducive to the act of creation. So it's, for me, that's what it feels like. It's, a, it's either a womb or it's like a desire for something greater. Mm, and the womb, I take it, is maybe a more small, intimate space, something like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, most of these places, thinking of Roald Dahl's writing room, it's this little nicotine-stained um, office with a desk and a chair and um, a bunch of knickknacks, including a piece of his own um, spine, some spinal mm. shavings and a, oh. and, a, and a bone from like just a very strange, tiny little. Yeah, but it, it, it was home for him. He spent 10 hours a day there for his whole life. Yeah. So so as you began to, to check out some of these really interesting residences and spaces, were there any themes or, or as you said, was it kind of all over the place? I think the only thing that unites them all would be their uniqueness. And by that, I mean, each space was so clearly 
that person's space. Like for instance, I, I visited Louisa May Alcott's home. Um, it's uh, in Concord, Massachusetts. It's where she wrote Little Women, one of the most moving, beautiful, timeless stories about uh, sisterhood and family. And her um, desk, if you could even call it that, is just a board wrapped around a house beam in a frigid attic um, that they learned later had lead paint, which led to lifelong um, pain and suffering for her. But that's where she wrote one of the most um, gorgeous stories of all time. And uh, it was just, it was so her, you know, that was 150 years ago. And you can still feel the life of these sisters. Mm. You can still see the staircase where they came down to perform their plays before their mother. Um, every place I visited, I'm like, oh, that is so clearly Dylan Thomas's writing shed. Oh, that is clearly John Wesley's preacher's booth. Right. <laughs> and I, I know you also, you visited the home of the 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 mega bestseller, Dan Brown. What, and he wrote in a pretty austere, quiet spot as well, didn't he? Well, actually, he's on my list. I haven't visited his house Fair yet. He, ha he has a very amazing, it's got like uh, uh, revolving walls and all sorts of secret cool chambers and stuff. But um, before he made all this money, he actually wrote the outline for Da Vinci Code on an ironing board in his parents' laundry closet. <laughs> Talk about a not ideal place to write a blockbuster work of fiction. So interesting. And yet, um, it's sort of like J.K. Rowling writing her uh, early books in a coffee shop. You know, you just make do with what you've got, where you're at. And that's really the definition of success when it comes to, to writing is... As an author myself, I, I, I can't just wait for whim, for the whimsy, and I can't wait for inspiration. You just have to work. And, you know, I wrote my first book uh, in an attic in, my, in Michelle's aunt's house in Marlboro, Massachusetts. Um, no Wi-Fi. And, um, and that was great. But I've written other books in completely different places, and none of them have been ideal. It's always going to be painful, and yet hopefully something beautiful comes out of it. And I think what you're talking to speaks to maybe the essence of creativity, which is as much as we're looking maybe for for that perfect space, for you know the right set of ingredients, it's an internal practice. It's about going inside of ourselves, isn't it? A hundred percent. I think the, probably the place that that is most became most evident to me, Jonathan, was when I visited. Um, William Wordsworth's house in the Lake District mm. in England. It's called Dove Cottage, um, centuries old, little tiny stone cottage. Uh, he lived in there with himself, his sister, his wife, his sister-in-law, his three kids, and a couple of servants. It's uh, only, you know, five, six hundred square feet, no hallways to go from room to room. Whoa. You simply go through each room, so there's no privacy. And yet in this little space, he said that we did we did many years of plain living and high thinking. And it was during that time that he wrote the prelude, uh, sorry, the, the prelude, the ode to duty, and his most famous, I wandered lonely as a cloud. Just mm -hmm. gorgeous, gorgeous poetry written in this cramped and busy child-filled space. So he clearly had something internal that was stronger than the externalities. It's so interesting because I know as we enter into these Christmas weeks and folks are at home, perhaps with their families stacked on top of themselves in new and interesting ways, that that we we feel like that we cannot maybe get anything artistic done, that we're going to have to push our artistic uh, endeavors to the side. But this story kind of tells us otherwise. Yeah, and it's not the only one. You know, you look at John Bunyan. He was imprisoned for 12 years because the government at the time hated Christians and I haven't visited his house yet, but I've been to his grave at Bunhill Fields in London. Uh, while he was in prison, he actually published three books, and he wrote the first part of Pilgrim's Progress, you know, a legendary story that's been around for centuries now. Um, and he was on the brink of starvation, and he was horribly mistreated, and he was sick all the time, and, and it didn't stop him from writing a legitimate classic work of of fiction. So I just feel like it's so easy to have excuses, right? It's right. so easy to say, I'll write tomorrow. I'll write tomorrow. But creation is like childbirth. It's painful. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I, I feel like I keep coming across this theme of, of incredible books written in prisons too. I mean, Nelson Mandela was, was a very famous example of that, but it's strange how the prison cell has brought us quite a bit of creativity over the many hundreds of years, hasn't it? Yeah. I, I think, 
it's it's Hemingway who's who's uh, I think credited with saying something like, um, "If you want to be a writer, just chain yourself to your desk," kind of right. thing. Like right. um, another great example of of something written in prison um, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul. He wrote his letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and to Philemon while under house arrest, awaiting execution in Rome in 62 AD. And he writes iconic lines like, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, and for it is by grace you are saved through faith. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Just like powerful words that have echoed for almost 2,000 years now. And these were written literally before he got his head chopped off. Like... Talk about added stress, but at the same time, it also forces you to do your best work knowing that life is short, mm-hmm. that life does have an end, that that all at the end of the day that we are going to leave behind is is love and letters. And so it's important that we share lots of both and make sure they're high quality. Mm-hmm. How do we learn to embrace smaller spaces. I know some psychologists have often said that they can be stressful and and it can be difficult when when you have so many people crammed in areas. But but how how do we kind of reframe that conversation? Ooh, I, I don't think we're gonna have a choice in the century to come. I think the economics of our late stage capital system are just gonna require more people living in smaller spaces like we've done mm-hmm. traditionally. Um, we're obviously seeing a skyrocketing number of multi-generational families, which I think is really good. Um, It's the grandmother effect, if you've learned anything about that. Um, The kids are actually safer and the grandparents live longer when you live in a generational home. Um, I just think that that's going to become a necessity because of how expensive real estate is and whatnot. Um, I think for Michelle and I, my wife and I, uh, we lived in an Airstream for three years. 1976 33-foot land yacht and that was good bad and ugly there were some amazing things about that Um, it was such a freak show fun thing to to do with our friends to have them over to our trailer it was also very difficult to run a home business and be a writer and a creator uh, two of us in such a small space so then upgrading quote-unquote upgrading to a 600 square foot victorian cottage feels like absolute luxury (laughs) it feels like we're living in a palace it's so wonderful so it really is all relative. Mm-hmm. Um, Henry David Thoreau, he wrote in a cabin that was about eight feet wide by 10 feet deep uh, and produced a work of literature that um, has changed my life and the lives of millions of people. Um, <laughs> size matters, <laughs> but perhaps not in the way we think. It's, it's more about reframing our expectations. Mm. It's interesting how you say the economics might force us into small spaces. I think there could be a lot of truth to that. And we also see... Um, this this movement of tiny homes and of people living in mobile homes. And, uh, you know, I, uh, my wife and I have a small camper van, which we seem to spend more and more time in. And what what tips do you have for just kind of, though, keeping those spaces sane uh, when, when we rely on them more and more? Um, I think part of it is to definitely find a way to segment it. Think of it more like a submarine. And so... One room has multi-purposes. So, for instance, so Michelle and I, we live in a 200-year-old Victorian cottage. It's got uh, foot-thick stone walls. Um, We're a couple-minute walk from the Irish Sea. And we have, I'm looking right now at a a fireplace beam that was originally part of a a ship, a tall ship on the ocean. Just so much beautiful history. Um, But the reality is our guest room is also Michelle's office. Right. And um, our bedroom has a very old stone fireplace that I've now turned into my standing desk. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's um, my mornings. I spend my mornings at my standing desk in my bedroom. And then my afternoons, I actually write lying down wearing periscope glasses in our living room by the mm-hmm. fire. So every space becomes a multiple spaces. But more importantly, allow this future world of tiny living to push you outside. So Michelle and I, every single night, we go for a star walk um, we go we go star sauntering, and we get some of our best ideas um, by by moonlight. Mm. Um, you really don't want to live an indoor life. It's, we were not we are not adapted for the indoor life, and so I think smaller spaces are going to be a great opportunity to actually rediscover out, outdoor spaces. Mm, good point. Yeah, well, we've talked about small spaces, but I wonder were there any writers who loved working in just kind of big cavernous like environments, or or had the resources? 
to create um, the kind of heavenly environment that you referenced earlier in our conversation. Yeah, that's interesting, Jonathan. Actually, one that immediately springs to mind is, um, so Harriet Beecher Stowe, she wrote um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, I actually have written a biography on the incredible forgotten enslaved man who inspired Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I'm now adapting it for a TV limited series. But um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, she lived in Hartford, Connecticut, and Mark Twain uh, had a rich wife. Uh, he had a sugar mama mm -hmm. and he decided that he wanted to be a famous author. So he got his wife to buy the property right beside Harry Beecher Stowe. She was the most famous author of the 19th century. And so he built a giant mansion right beside her. And um, just having that connection to her really helped his literary career. I don't know if he would have made it if he hadn't have had that connection to just getting inside her circle. But um, Twain's house is massive by today's standards, let alone by then. Um, it's a very gorgeous, um, it, please, uh, encourage your listeners to look it up online and visit, um, once COVID has passed. Um, it's a, you can kind of get a two for one with, um, with both these great authors. It's this giant, um, brick monstrosity and he had a whole loft dedicated to his writing. Um, but it would get very hot in the summers. And he would actually strip uh, to his underwear and open both windows. And he said that he would write in a tempest. So mm. how's that for getting close to heaven? <laughs> I like that. That's a, it's a great visual. Um, well, you know, as, as we start to wrap this up, I, do you have any favorite experiences or thoughts that, that come to mind from, from this pandemic or, or something that you've come across that's been particularly helpful or useful to you as an artist and someone who, who is interested in these spaces? COVID hasn't really been that huge of a change for Michelle and I um, because our life was already quite home-based as, as writers and filmmakers. Um, we did some fundraising um, for the huge amounts of poverty, added poverty in India. Um, we've been doing some more microfinance loans um, through Kiva, but it hasn't really changed our day-to-day our -day living. Um, I would say that the key for my literary life is definitely um, since the age of three I've been carrying two pens and scraps of paper in my left pocket I'm left-handed and um, I've upgraded now to a notebook mm -hmm. and writing is about gleaning the best uh, of life itself Henry David Thoreau said that we should never sit down to write until we've stood up to live and so I've really in non-COVID times try to pack my days with as much life as possible you know I've uh, I've traveled to North Korea. I've uh, danced uh, in Brooklyn with Hasidic rabbis. I've uh, had an audience with Pope Francis and got to have lunch at the Vatican. We've we've really tried to have a life of adventure that has led to some to some good writing because because life is interesting. So mm -hmm. I would just say that no matter what space you're in, try to glean as much from life as possible so that you have as much as possible to give back. Well said, and that's some very wonderful advice to take with us as we wrap this year up and head into the next. Jared Brock, writer and filmmaker, thank you for joining us on Life Examined. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, speaking of writers, we'll end today's show by hearing from one of my favorites. Ross Gay is a poet and essayist who teaches at the University of Indiana Bloomington. And in a year that's been, well, you can fill in the blank yourself, Ross Gay has a simple message for all of us. Take a moment every day and look for small moments of delight. He says it's something we can do even when we're cooped up at home. In fact, Gay did this for an entire year, and it became a book called The Book of Delights. Well, Ross Gay, thanks for joining us on Life Examined. Yeah, I'm glad to be with you. Well, can you tell us a little bit about this project? I, I personally love it so much. Um, how did it come to be? What were some of the things you were writing about? Um, yeah, take us into it. Yeah, one day I was I was walking home from uh, I was getting a coffee. Actually, I was in Italy for a month or something, and I had this sort of lovely experience. I was walking home and having a lovely experience walking home, and I thought, oh, I should write a little essay about this feeling mm. um, I'm having, which I which I identified as delight. And then I thought immediately. Oh, what would be really interesting is if I wrote an essay every day for a year about what delight something that delighted me. So that's the project. The project is the this the project was to write every single day for a year about something, notice something that delighted me and write a short essay about it. I gave myself a couple constraints, and the constraints were to do it every day, 
Um, the constraints were to write by hand and the constraints were to do it in 30 minutes. I put a timer on wow. and did it. So I did not do it every single day. <laughs> I, I did it a lot of days. So, you know, I probably, you know, I had in the high 200s probably of mm -hmm. essays. And, but the book itself is 102 essays. And they all sort of, all of the essays have this question about delight. Mm -hmm. How was that process for you? What, what was that like going about that almost every day, let's say? One of the things that I felt is how are you going to do that? Yeah. Yeah. How are you going to be delighted every day? Mm. And it's really interesting because with the task, I was kind of, you know, within a week or two, I was kind of like, oh, I'm actually constantly delighted, but mm. I do not articulate it. And I do not articulate the feeling of delight. Right. You know, and the feeling of delight might be something like I'm walking by a tree and the light is coming through the, the leaves or the light is coming through a little tear in a leaf. And I notice it and I, and I, don't articulate it necessarily as delight, though that's delightful. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Mm. But I didn't. But I didn't. I didn't say. Oh yeah, that was well. That was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Right. It's kind of like how do we how do we reattune ourselves to looking for those little moments of beauty when so often we're just kind of in our heads and we can be downers <laughs> and can, yeah. you know complaining and saying I know I didn't sleep well, but but my goodness, how do we? completely change the way we look at these little things and find potentially 365 different versions of these things. I think it's an incredible task. If you were to give us just a short sampling before we get to a reading of the things that you found delightful over those years, can you do like what, what encompasses some of the things you wrote about? I'm, I'm really curious. I wrote about like a public high five. Mm -hmm. I love the public high five, you know, with strangers. Yeah. Uh, I love nicknames. That's crazy, crazy for nicknames. Didn't realize that until I was writing this book. I'm delighted by writing by hand and, and witnessing other people's delight, uh, writing by hand. I'm often delighted by sort of tender touch where you don't necessarily expect it. You know, someone tapping your shoulder on an airplane or um, tapping your forearm on an airplane. Many things, you know, I'm delighted by often by the garden. I'm delighted by plants and flowers and the mm. interactions, the many interactions that happen in a garden. Yeah, I, they often sort of show up, but so often it's it's these sort of moments of it's these moments of care that I that I witness, quiet moments of care. I love that quiet moments of care. I, I hear that. Yeah, uh, and you're someone that I know from some of your other work. You you love the garden, love the garden, and have written yeah. about it. And a lot of us, it's interesting, you know, in this pandemic, a lot of people have been focusing on their gardens. It's kind of it's it's the magical place they have in their house, outside of their house, um, that they can that they can spend time. And why do you love your garden so much? One is that it's like sensory pleasure of a garden. You know, I, I spend a lot of time smelling things. I spent, I grow a lot of food. I spend a lot of time tasting things. I spend a lot of time looking at things, touching things, you know. I think I'm also like sort of drawn to experiences that make me get into a different relationship to time. And a garden does that in many ways. Um, one of the things like gardens are, <laughs> for me, <laughs> they're like, they're really the word it's the, i'm going to use the wrong word but i'll say it anyway they're kind of distracting hmm. like i think i'm walking to one place in a garden and i'm never and i never get there oh, you know right, right um so they they kind of they draw my attention in ways that i kind of like to have my attention be drawn they also you know gardens are places where you put things in the ground and and wait and and you wait in part for the kindness of the earth mm. yeah do you get any any essential lessons from the garden? What has the garden taught you? I mean, all of the lessons. <laughs> I think yeah. all the lessons. One is, you know, patience. The other thing is, there to, to me, there are few metaphors as beautiful as the fact that contained in a seed, like, you know, a collard seed or a kale seed, tiny little thing, is in fact collard greens or kale for centuries. There's in, in a seed that you could not even see if it was on the table in front of you is food for so many, so many gathering. That to me is like, what a beautiful um, lesson on metaphor. Yeah, I, I feel like we could talk about gardens for a long time together. And I, oh, love, yeah. and I love that. Um, and But I'd love for you to read something for us from the Book of Delights. What, what do you have? Yeah. What could you share with us? 
And this is, yeah, this is a sort of a sort of a gardening thing, actually, from an essay called uh, Joy is Such a Human Madness, The mm. Death Between Us. Or like this, in healthy forests, which we might imagine to exist mostly above ground and be wrong in our imagining, given as the bulk of the tree, the roots are reaching through the earth below, there exists a constant communication between those roots and the mycelium where often the ill or weak or stressed are supported by the strong and surplus. By which I mean a tree over there needs nitrogen and a nearby tree has extra. So the hyphae, so close to hyphen, the handshake of the punctuation world, the fungal ambulances ferry it over. Constantly, this tree to that, that to this. And that in a tablespoon of rich fungal duff, a delight, the phrase fungal duff, meaning a healthy forest soil swirling with the living the dead make, are miles and miles of hyphae, handshakes, who get a little sugar for their work. The pronoun who turned the mushrooms into people. Yes, it did. Evolved the people into mushrooms. Because in trying to articulate what perhaps joy is, it has occurred to me that among other things, the trees and the mushrooms have shown me this. Joy is the mostly invisible, the underground union between us, you and me, which is, among other things, the great fact of our life and the lives of everyone and thing we love going away. If we sink a spoon into that fact, into the death between us, we will find it teeming. It will look like all the books ever written. It will look like all the nerves in a body. We might call it sorrow, but we might call it a union. One that, once we notice it, once we bring it into the light, might become flower and food, might be joy. Poet Ross Gay, thanks for, thanks for sharing some time with us. And, um, and, and and showing us a little bit of delight. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's fun to talk to you. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastion at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.